everybody. You're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, brought to you by Iron Company. Today we're talking about the Forrest Gump of Strength Sports, Part 4. It's going to be a little bit of a potpourri of strength feats mixed with a little hijinks. So sit back, relax, and uh, just listen to all this crazy stuff that Marty's been through throughout his life, starting way back in the 60s and going forward. Um, so, Marty, where do you want to start today? I mean... Well, first off, I'd like to, like, put a disclaimer on this thing. I feel so weird sitting talking about myself. It is so not well, It's not really about you. It's about nature. encounters. This is about yeah, history, yeah, okay. though. You know, and I like that. I like that, Jim. From that kind of perspective, I can get on with it. So, yeah. But I just wanted to have that little disclaimer. I This is, like, not... Well, let me tell you something. I don't reflect. I don't reflect on the past. I'm like a in the present kind of person. And, yeah. you know, stories you are know great, what? man. The whole world is stories. The only way that history happens is with stories. I just Listen, happen to be there. It's crazy. Listen, it's the same reason that I wanted to get your all all your articles and everything on our site because you've got so much pent up history and information that most people don't know about, you know, uh, that I wanted to bring out. You've got such interesting stories and all these gumpisms. And so I thought, you know, talking about this in a series of different podcasts, too, would, you know, and you're an excellent storyteller, and we can kind of go through your history and talk about all this crazy stuff you've been through, you know, starting back with Paul Anderson, you know. (laughs) I mean, who yeah, saw that? Yeah. Who's a, who's alive today that saw that? You were there. You got it. Yeah, that's a while ago. Jim and I were little Eddie, babies Eddie when Pete. that happened. No, I don't <laughs> think you were born. Were you? I wasn't born even yet. born. <laughs> Jim was born. Yeah, I was, hey, you weren't born. <laughs> I wasn't born. Yeah, I, no. I won my I won my first national championships before you guys were born. I was born in '67, <laughs> so I got a few years on JP. '71. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you were born yeah. yeah, 71, everything was, was, was just kicking off. With all those ugly-ass earth tones and formica and bell-bottoms and all that good stuff. A potpourri of... Uh... It's a potpourri of strength feats mixed with a little bit of hijinks. I just want to talk about where you brought that word from, man. You, just, you were saving that one up, potpourri? No, man, that's what it is. Let's talk about it. Okay. All, all right, come on, Okay, so... so um... We're, the time frame picks up in uh, uh, 1983. I broke my leg. I had a, a freak lifting accident where I dropped 700 pounds off my back and it fell across my left rear. What's the lower leg, Jim? Is that the, not the femur? The um... yeah. And uh, so I had a compound fracture, and it was uh, that was the end of my big league lifting career. I had been an Olympic weightlifter. I had gotten out of it for, I don't know, maybe five years and had gotten back into it and was on a roll. Uh, I think we'd mentioned I'd gotten up to 845 squat in training at the time. The world record in the 242-pound class was 871 by Danny Wilber. So I was close, but that all ended because uh, I took a year and a half to come back off that. Now, in the year and a half, I took advantage of the time. I actually increased my bench press PR up 30 pounds, right? I couldn't 
you know, I had a cast, a giant cast on my left leg. Let me you ask know, you trainable, something. Trainable, man. But we're, now, when I, when I screwed up my meniscus, you go, well, you're going to train the other leg, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. So did you train your, your other leg that wasn't broken? Yeah, you can do like one legged, um, you know, uh, leg press. Anything with a machine, you just do it with one leg. Yeah. It's well, only one limb, dude. You've got three others. I know. You yeah. made me think well, of it differently, though, because I'm yeah. like, okay, I can't train legs. And you go, well, why have double atrophy? Yeah. And I go, I well, mean, it's just like, I never thought I mean, of it that I, way, I guess. It wouldn't occur to me to not train, see? I have to. I have to train. I'm, it's in my DNA. Yeah, no, I get it. I'm the same way. Right. So if you, you know, even if you have a broken leg, it's like, okay, what can I do? <laughs> so yeah, anyway, my big in the other yeah. stuff, you know. Well, yeah, you can sit, sit, anything seated. Yeah. Curl, uh, seated overhead press, anything pull down, a lap, pull, seated lap pull down, seated row. There's so many things you can do. I had a kid the other day who wouldn't come in because he had a jammed finger. I was like, I to him, "Oh no!" I was like, "What's wrong with his legs?" Oh no, <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, people, people automatically think, "Oh, I can't do anything, man." You can do so much stuff. Oh, Jim, you're you're so cool. I'm so <laughs> cool. I am. I know. What did you demand of him to train with a finger was jammed? With a jam. Come on. Yes. So anyway, I had, uh, so after that, it was interesting because I had, I decided to get into coaching. Yeah. Right. Because I, I loved anything to do with training. I absorbed whether it was Olympic lifting or powerlifting. And I was lucky enough to mentor under Hugh Cassidy, world champion. You know, how fortuitous was that? Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so now uh, I'm at, you know, I'm with Mark and Mark's career takes off. But Mark's career takes off in some part due to me. I gave him focus. Uh, I held him accountable, disciplined up to a good degree. Um, he wanted to lift in USPF and the IPF. And that damn judging is so strict. And Mark is just naturally a borderline lifter. Right, you know, squats. everything, everything, squat bench, everything, just kind of borderline technique because you don't need to be exacting in local and regional competitions. So only he, when you get to the go ahead. Sorry, did he adopt his uh, his deadlift technique from you, who got it from Hugh, or was he already doing that? Oh no, he was he was ahead of me on that. Um, he got it from Mark Dimadoc. Okay. Who was huge number? Mark Dimidoc, world champion, IPF world champion, I, uh, USPF national champion. Bad, blankety blank. I mean, the guy was the real deal. Uh, DC DC undercover narc. Wait, who was Dimidoc? Yeah, Mark Dimidoc. I just oh, excuse me. Did an atomic bomb just go off in LA? What happened? That wasn't on my uh -huh. end. <laughs> I'm sorry. Guys, Maybe it was me. I, I think it was Jim. He's in the duck blind. I'm not a duck blind. I wish I wasn't a duck blind. So anyway, so no, that that was the lineage. Hugh had came up with this narrow the, the, the characteristics of the deadlift style was a bit a narrow stance, one fist width between the heels, 
which at the time is unheard of. Everybody's like, uh, uh, deadlift stance, who thinks about that? And Cassidy's like, well, if you take the <laughs> geometric progressions of the linear square footage and divide it by, you know, the uh, cubic footage of the earth, you come up with yeah. uh, <laughs> this. And they're like, okay. Yeah, and it's it makes, more efficient. It's, it makes a shorter it's, straight line pull. Yeah, and it's sure, more it's you your balance with that short, It shortens the length of the pull. Yeah. What is the body position that allows for the shortest possible length of pull. Yeah. And then the pull needs to be straight. Right. The shortest distance between two points. It can't go forward. It can't go backwards. It has to go straight. Now, now you tried to get Karwaski to do that, but his legs were too damn big, right? Uh, yeah. Kirk was kind of stuck <laughs> halfway between a sumo and a conventional. Cause, right. But, you know, again, he still, he pulled 825. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. So anyway, getting back to my situation after I uh, shattered my legs. So I got into coaching, successful with Mark. At the Nationals, we campaigned, oh, God, five five straight years and pushed him up from 242s. I think took second at the Nationals, up to 275s. And, man, you were fighting the, the giants of the giants. You know, when you're going up against John Gamble, Larry Kidney, Terry McCormick, Oh, who else is Furness in that class? No, Furness is only 242 at the time. You know, it's a it's a cavalcade of all time great lifters because we were only one federation back then, right? And there was nowhere else to go, and there was no testing, and everybody was gigantic and huge and muscular and ripped, and and there was no gear. The gear was minimal at best, and if you had gear, it was crummy. You know, we put on these. They put on these damn bench shirts and go, you know, they get 30 pounds out of them. Now, how, why was that originally made? Just, just because it, it, uh, it started off using tight T-shirts, right? Oh, the whole gear thing? No, the bench shirt specifically. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't, I can't, I, I'm not quite sure as to the conception of the bench right. shirt. You know? One day you guys are doing it raw and, and Williams is doing 700. Right. And if and you know go ten twelve years later and the guys are you know you're ripping your nails out putting on a bench shirt for a guy you know how did that happen to you pick know? up yeah well, anyway it's just it was a you know you open Pandora's box right. and you can get bit and yeah. and they never should have let any gear in the door because what happened is anytime <clears throat> excuse me for a minute I have a cough. Ooh. Oh, I am, oh man, no, I'm, I'm soothing it with some excellent um, bubbles. Gave me what is it? Wood stove monument imperial stout. So nice. That's what we're having today. Ten percent. Ten percent. Ten percent alcohol content. Nice. Um, gave me some. Yeah, no. Uh, so <laughs> where were we? Where, 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 You're talking about JP, the, the yeah. bench shirt. Uh, yeah, let's get off the equipment. Because, all right. You know, I just, you know, I, you know it, it all it all originated in California. Right, but the pure <laughs> in you must have been like, what the hell? Now I got to, but then you had to take advantage of it because you're coaching these guys. Well, that's what. And Cassidy was the first one. He wrote the the, the great article, you know, uh, ban all gear, and he, he said, said, if, said if you don't the jihad, that was the same thing. 
that was what I wrote. I yeah. amplified on the cast, but Cassidy was the first one who pointed out. He said, if you need to strangle this baby in the crib, if Marty. you allow it to take root, and you know what happened? Here's eventually what happened. You had guys with the bench press record is over 1,100 pounds. <laughs> the greatest raw bench on record, we just recently set it, 745. Fantastic Man, record. Can you imagine that? But the spread between 745 oh. and 1,100 is 40%. I know, I know. Take that and apply that. Now, if Nike came out with the shoe, but you put the shoe on, and it would allow you to run 40% faster. Okay. JP, you'd be like Flash Gordon, man. Oh, my God. I would. Jimmy, believe it or not, Jimmy, I would. Jimmy, Jimmy, now get this. What this would enable is, what's a good 100-meter high school time? What, I'm thinking like 11, flat, right? I guess, yeah. A high school guy, right? I mean, tens, yeah. Even the tens, I mean, that's pretty damn good. That's almost that's collegiate. Yeah, really good? You say really good? Okay, all right. Ten, all right, great. All right, great. Ten eight. Ten eight hundred meter time, right? Okay. So you put the shoe on. Now, you know what happens when you put the shoe on? You go like freaking You're six. Faster than Usain Bolt. I may have been thinking a hundred yards. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. Just, I'm just saying, you're forty. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. It's and it's 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 like pushing somebody over the finish line, man. It it just it's weird. It's insane. I hated, like, it. I hated it. I hated uh, it. Well, you, you know, we were in the distinct minority, weren't we? And, I, I you, and you know why? You know why? You know why? You know why? Because we knew guys. I trained with a guy. I didn't train with him. I observed him from afar. Uh, who raw benched 405, right. put a shirt on, and benched 600. Yeah. Oh, I believe that. Well, that's a 33% increase. Yeah. Jim, what did it do for your bench? Uh, like 70, 80 pounds. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what? You didn't know nothing. You were a gear idiot. It was a pro power. <laughs> and my, my competition's using it. I want to win it, you know? Well, right. okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Look, let's still get sidetracked and all that. I mean, because that's exactly the antithesis of what exactly. I was raised yeah, and was born point. on. It was like, and, and that was, no, we were like, let's lift naked. <laughs> exactly. Be able to walk yeah. into any gym and yes. do what you need to do. Yeah. Anywhere, because it's anytime. real. Put on a speedo. Show me what you got. What do you want to look? But, but Marty, you said it best. You said it best. You, at that point, you don't know where the man ends and the gear begins. You know. What about a belt? What about a belt, Marty? A belt? Yeah, you allowed to use. Okay, a well, you know, I mean, that's okay. Yeah, it goes good with a dress. No, when when he <laughs> was using a belt or no belt when he competed. No belt. None of those guys did. I don't know about none of those guys. What no, do you I'm saying, so I want to know the evolution. Of, so did they, did it come later? Because when Cassidy wrote that article. Let me tell you something about the belt. When Kirk Karwaski didn't wear the belt, what was he doing, Jim? Seven. He did 800 for a single with no belt. No, 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 no. He did do that. Though. Without the belt, he did seven 
40 for five. No, 705 for five. Puts the belt on, is able to do 805 for five. <coughs> Incredible. How, who gets this much out of a, a belt alone? Not even knee yeah. I don't know if so much that helps you with lifting more poundage, but it just on your high sets, your max out sets, it, no, you can't it keeps generalize. everything compressed. No you, can't, no, you cannot generalize. Everybody is different. Kirk Karwaski, for whatever his physiology, that belt was magic to him. Yeah, and, and probably some mental, too. Pro, yeah, it mental, too. Well, yeah, to me, it meant nothing. Bob, Bobby Myers once said, oh, oh, Marty, uh, without a belt, 700 for three. Uh, with a belt, 705 for three. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Yeah, because, no, I you know. know. But that, that's because of my Olympic lift background where yeah. everything was done upright, upright, upright. If you, if you do all your lifting upright, there's no need for a belt. It's only when you get bent forward that you need to expand the abs, push against the belt, straighten up. I think the belt. If you gives, never get bent forward, you never need to use the belt. I think too, uh, a belt gives you a sense of security. Like you know, a lot of people think they won't. You know, it, it won't. They won't screw up their back if they've got a belt on, which you can still screw up your back. But I mean, it just keeps everything compressed, and like you said, it, it allows your your abdominal wall to push, and it creates all that inner pressure and support within that belt that goes all the way around your back and your. I don't so, agree with any of so that. So I, I think it's a lot of mental things. No, I think it's a baby pacifier. I remember that Yuri spinoff did nine oh four no belt at the yeah, remember when he was right. a guest lifter? That's right. Or nine twenty. It was now, uh, anyway, sorry, man, I got us off on a tangent. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Wait a second. Thanks, Not to keep going about belts, but what was they, real interesting oh, is God, Lamar Gant used to wear his belt backwards. Yeah, now that helps when you deadlift because uh, you don't have that. You know, you can't you can't get down to the bars effectively. You no, just... no, no, no. You guys missed the key critical point because I was the guy who put Lamar's belt on backwards. Yeah, because and the so, thick bar. No. Okay. Was that your idea? No. Don't talk <laughs> over me. Don't interrupt. Go. Okay. He put it on, but you missed the key critical point, which is how high he placed the belt. He didn't put the belt low like the rest of us would over your belly button. He had that damn thing up like we're his halfway between his ribs and his gut. Yeah, it's definitely so half, half the belt was covering his ribs and half the belt was covering his belly. Yeah. Right. But, but that was specifically to address his scoliosis, right? I, I don't know. I didn't ask him. Well, we when you had the Olympic lifting belts, we would turn them around and put the thick part in the front before they made the thickness all the way around. Well, you were an innovator. <laughs> Where yeah, but were you we? can't bend forward. Oh God! How do we get you're, off on this tangent? Yes, you can. Why are we talking about gear? When it's thick you. all the way around, you can bend forward. That's what we oh, use. Oh God! Go ahead. No, oh, kill me. Go ahead. Marty's done JP. with gear. Go ahead. Yes. All right, we can be done with gear. Are we done? Thank you. No, we're not done, but I mean, it's like. Good, <laughs> uh, I got stuff uh, to do. You know, this is, this is when I wish you guys were an arm's length. <laughs> Come on, let's go, man. <laughs> I'm going. If All you right. guys are, get off in these gear tangents. All right, go ahead. So, so I'm doing the coaching, and I'm coaching 
just locally, right? And I'm working with Mark Chalet, the greatest 275-pound deadlifter in the world, a guy who hits a 1,000-pound legal squat, an 880 dead, 5'9", 275. But, and, and again, Chalet was a powerhouse personality. He had a magnetic personality for alpha males. He was like, uh, you know, the gang, the guy that they would pick to be the gang leader. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, He just, uh, he had that uh, sense about him. He had a physical presence about him that was uh, uh, unique. So I'm working with Mark, and Mark and I were training partners for six years. Right? He had the most beautiful wife. Her name was Ellen, and she was strong as hell. I, I'm thinking Ellen's deadlifting, you know, like 350 to 380, weighing, you know, 120. She was little. Oh, yeah. She, did you ever uh, meet her? Yeah. I lifted her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. I loved Ellen. She was, she was great. And also in that same, from the same neighborhood was Don Mills. And Don was... Uh, to this day, he's the greatest masters lifter in history. Uh, Don won, I think, seven straight world masters titles. This is a guy stood five four, weighed two twenty with a seven hundred squat and deadlift and a five hundred raw bench. He must have been thick. Really? How productive. In your book, there's a picture of you guys. Yeah, yeah, the picture of Don, right? He's a splitting image of Don Rickles. What? Don Mills? Just in the the face. Don Rickles. Yeah. Right? Uh, No, Don Mills was a statuesque (laughs) Afro-American. Don Rickles was black. All did. Were Don Rickles? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Was a doughy, doughy Jewish American comedian. I mean, I, you know what? He's pretty funny. Don Rickles. Okay, funny. wait a minute. Is, is, is it your goal today to sabotage this? No, I. Episode? You know, I apologize. Maybe I was looking at something else. Yeah, what time is it out there anyway, JP? Oh my god! All right. Sorry, guys. So, Let's talk about so, gear. It, no, uh, yeah. So I'm coaching Mark Chalet. I'm coaching Don Mills. A little later on, I'm coaching the young Kirk Kowalski. Kirk first approached me to coach him. He was not. Everyone says, oh, you know, Kowalski, you know, he just walked in and took over. That's not really the case. When Kirk first appeared to me, he was way bottom heavy. How old was he, Marty? Well, it's interesting. There was a split in our relationship I had seen Kirk on the edges. There was a guy named Joe Pavanelli, who was a power player in the Prince George's County lifting scene. Yeah. And I got introduced to Joe's training group through Marshall Peck and Joe Ferry, and they were all asshole buddies from way back. And so we went over to several of Joe's sessions, mm. and Joe and his boys, and Kirk was in with that crew. Right. It's more like a uh, Waldorf and Arundel crew, right? Yeah, of- right, 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 right. So later, then Marshall Pack uh, built his house and started <laughs> training crew. Yeah, there. You drive up the Pecks. He had this uh, hillbilly mansion in the middle of the woods. And you drive up, you had this long driveway to this beautiful house. Him and his buddy Joe Ferry had built. And uh, Marshall would be mowing the lawn and his 
tractor, right? <laughs> and he wave at you, and he's like, he's naked. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's, oh, he's, man, he's, he's driving, driving his tractor, and he's, 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 he's muscled out. I mean, this is a guy, I don't know what, five, seven. He's like, hey, Marty. Yeah, he's just waving. Hey, what's up? And so, he, and he just walks in, and he's naked, and he's flopping around. He looks up and he said, you know, he said, you know, he said, uh, my girlfriend doesn't like the tan line. Oh, my God. <laughs> what town? What town? Where was that? What county was that? Uh, no, wait a minute. Now, he was a little, Anne Arundel. Anne Arundel, yeah. Uh, you know, I, think, I think that's what it was. Oh, yeah. So that was a great training group. That's also when they had all the Baltimore criminals would show up. They'd show up in their Lincoln Continental and get yeah. out. And uh, they owned a, several liquor stores in Baltimore. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they would train with us. I love those guys. And like another guy. At Peck's house. Yeah, at his house. He had a totally tricked out power basement. Okay. And, okay, I shouldn't say, I guess we shouldn't have said his name. Anyway, I don't know. He might not mind. Uh, him and his partners would often get revved up for the training session watching porn. Oh, I remember this. Oh, my God. The story, yeah. I'm like, what is going on? He goes, oh, brother, he said, you want to get your testosterone level up? Stick around. I said, now nah, I'm going to get downstairs and just, you know, do my own warm up. You didn't feel like sitting around with men watching. <laughs> no, I did not. And, yeah. and they'd come down those basement stairs, and let me tell you, their eyes were yeah. like, "Wow!" Red face. All red faced and ready. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I mean, it's horrible, but it's true. So, and, and they'd be great lifters. I mean, you'd see guys, you know, uh, routinely. You know, uh, the Baltimore. Big guy would routinely do, I don't know, what, 755 for five in the squat. Oh, great bencher, 550 for five in the bench. They like to see that. For a guy who looked, you know, he's weighing 280. Yeah, big dude. But not, no, he's not. He's, right, but he's, big jacked up dude. Right? You know, he looks more like a bodybuilder, right? Yeah, that's what I meant, big jacked up dude. Yeah, Yeah, he looks like uh, the guy who plays Thor in the movies now. Yeah. That guy, except except with loads of muscle. So <clears throat> I'm coming up in that on the local level. But because of my work with Chalet, uh, the guys at the national level see me. And I get approached by John Black of Black's Gems, which is out of Cleveland. And they're the national team champions. Yeah. And John approaches me and says, hey, you know, we really like the work you're doing with Mark. Uh, you know, and Mark would, was a member of Blacks. Black would recruit the top lifters in the country to be on their team. Right. And they routinely recruited Mark. <clears throat> and I coached Mark. So they got to know me through my work with Mark. They liked what they saw. So they said, hey, how would you like to coach for Blacks? And I said, yeah, that sounds good because I'm going to be there anyway. What it meant was instead of going to the national championships and, and coaching one lifter, I went and on one day, I'd go to the national championships and I'd coach seven lifters over two days. That must be tough. You didn't know half the guys. I mean, you knew them, but not like all no, the you know. Everything I mean, he, he, like you did with Shadow. I don't, I don't know Lamar Gant. Yeah. Right? You know? 
<laughs> and you show up and you go, hey, uh, Marty, uh, you know, you're going to coach Lamar today. And I'm like, oh, really? I don't know if I want to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's like, right. And it's like, I hope we hit her off. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I mean, that's what? a lot of work entrusting it with you. He never even met you. No, yeah, no kidding. Met, no, yeah, that's right. Wow. But you know what? You know what? You say it worked out. It worked out because, you know, I'm um, I'm a good coach. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is that all the guys that get to the top level, they're very uh, realistic in self-assessment. That's mm-hmm. how they got to the top level. If you're not realistic in self-assessment, you will get injured and you will be out of the game. But these guys, there's nobody that's at a national level that doesn't have 10 years under their belt. Right? Any sport, doesn't matter. And in order to have 10 years under your belt, you have to have 10 uninjured years. And when you're talking powerlifting, which is like handling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds, right, and all these lifts, you got to be damn careful. Yeah. Now, Marty, at right. these meets, I mean, you're meeting these guys for some of these guys for the first times. I mean, well, and- okay, but, but but remember, I've done, I do this, I end up doing this for five years in a row. So right. by the end of the, by the end of this thing, I mean, yeah, you, you only meet them. I mean, I'm not saying I met these guys for the first time. I'd been on the scene with Mark for a couple three years before John approached me, John Black. You know what I mean? I mean, I was not yeah. an unknown quantity. It wasn't like they were picking me out of the audience. It was like, well, no, this guy. But, but some right. of them you haven't coached before, so I'm I'm curious. Sometimes it's they easy. have the sometimes they have the no. coach pick the weights. So I mean, you don't no. know them well enough to to know what. No, you know. no, no, no. I'm not going to do that. But on the one hand, but on the other hand, we talk about what their training experience has been, and we talk about mainly who they're up against and what they can expect from their competition. Yeah. Now that's what Marty knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to talk about this guy in this weight class? Well, you know, you can probably expect, you know, 622, 357, you know, 688, right. You know, cause I know that stuff. Yeah. And based on that, do you want to win or do you want to, you know, make a lot of attempts and place third, you know, and they knew that I was a winner. You don't get picked to coach blacks, you know, because, you know, you're average. I mean, I, you know, I had some track record behind me and again, we won, uh, how many championships? I think we won, but we won five national championships in three different uh, uh, federations you know we we when we were on we ruled they, they you know uh, we beat the mighty United States combined uh, forces team right wow yeah uh, and because of that you know a little later down the road I got named as a, a coach to the United States of America at the world championships, the IPF world championships, yeah, which is the only really, the only really real world championships. The IPF was, you know, that everyone else, their world championships are like uh, regional meets with maybe two guys from Puerto Rico and a couple of banned Russian lifters. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. That's it. And it's the world championships of, you know, Texas, 
or the yeah. World Championships of uh, Oregon or the World Championships of New Jersey. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is the World Championships of the world. When you go to the back room and no one's speaking English, right, as I have done, right, because I competed in three IPF World Master Championships. Right? And all the Eastern Europeans are smoking, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they smell they're horrible purposely. They create a bad body odor in order to mess you up. That's part of their psych-out thing. Really? Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. We can get into that. That doesn't happen to the 90s. We're still in the 80s, right? So, again, so I've got the lifting coaching thing going on, right, with my local guys, the Mark Chalets, the Don Mills, the Kirks, the Mark Dimiducks to a, a lesser limited degree. I've got the national coaching thing going on where now I'm working with a broader spectrum of lifters. And because of that, I come into contact with Ed Cohn, the greatest lifter in the history of powerlifting. Right. And for whatever reason, he takes a shine to me. And so suddenly, I'm coaching Ed Cohn. Well, first I'm talking to Ed. And he's a smart guy. And I'm a smart guy. He gives a lot of thought to training. I give a lot of thought to training. So I would quiz the hell out of him. All right, what do you do? What do you do? Seriously, tell me every day. What do you eat? How do you sleep? What do you lift? You know, and, and I was just fascinated by this stuff because this guy had, he was some sort of a breakthrough guy. Right. He was past once a decade. You know, he says, oh, yeah, he's a once a decade athlete. No, this is different. This is like once a, what, Jim? 50-year thing? At least. He, was, he was our Jim Brown. He was our Wilt Chamberlain. Right? Yeah. He, he was that good. He was that far beyond everyone else. And you look at him stacked up against the other great lifters at the time, and he didn't look that impressive i mean he looks good but you put him uh, what's that photo that we ran jp we've got him up against doug furness uh jeb magruder i think Doyle kennedy's in the photo and some other giant yeah. and hatfield. fred hatfield and fred's at his massive 250 pounds yeah and, and and i make the comment and i said and you know what ed Cohn outlifted every one of these guys you know, mm-hmm. I posted that picture. I'm looking at it right now. You should, on run, it. You should run, put it up again, buddy. I posted that, and I I think Ed commented on it. He goes, I think he said, I'm the only one left in that picture. That's yep. right, right? No, I don't think yep. anybody's but left. I don't think there either. But those yeah. guys, I mean, I mean, those numbers, and no one today can match the numbers that those guys made. Yeah. By the way, the name of that uh, article on our website, ironcompany.com, is uh, When Powerlifting Giants Walk the Earth. Yeah. And you can go to articles and search that. And it's uh, it's little tidbits of each of these guys, and it's pretty interesting. So now I'm working with Eddie. Well, Ed puts me in touch with Doug Furness. Right? And, I mean, anybody who knows anything about powerlifting worships Doug Furness. I mean, he was incredible. I mean, he was a, 
the, for once, we had a guy who should have been in the NFL that we were able to keep in lifting. And he stayed with us, I think, for a total of five years. But he was a... He, he did play in the NFL. I know he did, but yeah. he had he had some issues that... Right, he had some injury and, stuff that just didn't... Yeah. Um, he had been involved in a near-fatal car. He was a, like... He grew up on an Oklahoma ranch. Yeah. Where his parents raised prime Brahma bulls. And he was a rodeo kid from the time he was like eight years old. He would compete. And the family would compete in rodeos for money. And he was like roping cattle. And he was riding bucking broncos. Yeah. And this went on up until the time he was like 14 years old and they were coming back from a rodeo event and got involved in a head-on collision that Jeez. destroyed the whole family. And he ended up, his body was destroyed. This crushed, that crushed, thrown, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. All right. So he came back from that and ended up in the same grade as his younger brother, they ended up, so they took up weight training as a way for him to recoup from this car accident. Right. But he had these superior genetics, right? So the brother was taller, 6'3". Doug was 5'11". They played on the championship high school team in their division in Oklahoma and won. They were both named to the Oil Bowl, which puts the best players in Oklahoma against the best players in Texas, which they won. They both together went to the same junior college. They won the National Junior College Championships. Then they went to Tennessee together. They played on the same team as Reggie White and Willie Galt. Uh, they went to the Orange Bowl. They lost the Orange Bowl in the last 15 seconds. Um, Doug went on to the Broncos, but he started developing chronic hamstring injuries because his thighs were overdeveloped in relation to his hamstrings. Right. Eventually, he got to the point that... Um, he was out of his football career. So from 21 to 27, 26, maybe he concentrated on powerlifting and, you know, he, he moved mountains in that amount of time. It's incredible. Yeah. And he was going, he, uh, he, his total was 2,400. He did that a couple of times, right? Yeah, he was the first guy in his. Uh, yeah, he was the, Doug was the first guy in history to, to total twenty four hundred twice. He did it in Maui. Uh, I didn't work with him then, uh, but then that was the APF first APF Worlds, and then he did it in Minnesota uh, in the cold weather. And I did coach him. That why well, I didn't coach. You don't coach those guys. You assist those guys. What was he like as? A, what was his personality like? He was um, non-emotive, right? Okay. 
even keeled. He didn't. He, he didn't drink. He didn't smoke. Uh, he didn't cuss. Um, but he was bad. He was a badass. Right. Uh, and he was quiet. He was like the guy. Well, I think Randy Strassen at Miley described him as. He's the kind of guy you want to have as the uh, commander of your tank battalion. Uh-huh. Right. He's just a cool and i mean he his presence was like physical at his peak he was freaky yeah muscular wise oh yeah um, his thighs right we're in his thighs crazy he, oh he's crazy but bigger than kirk's even i think and and uh-huh. weighing 280 and had veins on his abs he was so lean but couldn't and, he vertical jump some crazy you know uh, could, i saw him i saw him do a, a standing backflip on a bet yeah and he exactly. could do the splits, right? Even with those huge legs. Oh, yeah, legs. yeah, yeah. That's how, he, that's how he warmed up. He did, the, And he could do the Chinese split where you uh, put both your legs out to your side and then put your body forward. What was funny is he tried to get Eddie to do that stuff. <laughs> we had a group. Before the, uh, I forget where the first, I forget the year, but the first APF World Championships were held in Maui, Hawaii. Can you imagine? Mm. And so Mark, you know, I was with Mark and we went over. It was like the greatest powerlifting trip of all time. So we got over there and so Ed and Doug said, oh, meet us at Moose McGillicotty's up in the second floor. And so you go down and we were in Lahaina. We we're staying in Lahaina. We had it was some incredible deal. You could get a uh, this inc- beautiful villa home overlooking the lush everything you could walk to downtown Lahaina in two minutes and included a rental car for a hundred dollars a day (laughs) can you imagine they're like yeah we're there so we got over there and so we met Doug and Ed and I'm there with Mark and Ellen and a bunch of other people so we're up there and, and we're eating our breakfast and Mark's and we're supposed to lift at 10 o'clock and it's supposed to be the, uh, the two twenties, the two, two, two 42s and two seventy five. So that's Ed and Doug and Mark. So we're sitting there and it's, and, you know, it's like nine fifteen or something. And, you know, everybody's eating there and having a good time and the good food is great. We're sitting up on the second floor overlooking the, you know, the, the main drag and it's just, beautiful and so mark's like kind of jabbing me a little bit because he's looking at the time he's going if we're gonna lift the 10 man we gotta get there i mean I've got, we gotta get warmed up we gotta and <laughs> so i so i look at doug and said uh brother we're supposed to lift the 10 he goes don't worry about it marty they won't start without us <laughs> <laughs> and he went back to his scrambled egg i and guess I, not I right guess. I just shrugged my shoulders at Mark and go, they were, and you know what? He was right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so, so we've got that going on. Then, Wait a minute, let me ask know, you something. Uh, sorry to yeah. interrupt here. I, I want to make sure that we don't pass over Karwaski. Are you coming up to him again or? No, Kirk, 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 Kirk is just, he's, he's on the periphery. He's not, yeah, he's, he's starting, he's starting to lift at Mark's. But he's just one of many, and he's not. 
um, but it's there's different. A, there's a story behind that, that uh, when he started lifting with you guys, you guys, I don't think, liked him all that much, right? No, that, that, that was actually at Marshall Pax. Yeah. When we were at Marshall Pax, uh, Kirk would appear and... He was, and, and you know, and the, the Baltimore guys were kind of rough, and they were like, "Well, you know, what do we need this kid for?" Right. And Marshall's like, oh, "All right, he's all right. You know, he's just a local guy, and it's all right." And so, well, you know, well, you know, whatever. But you know, uh, he seems a little cocky to us. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk's. It took a long time for Kirk's performance to catch up to his ego. <laughs> and wouldn't right. you guys mess with him? And and... Well, I mean, no, it was more than mess with him. It was like, you know, that stuff might work around your crowd, kid. But, you know, I mean, you know, this is a Baltimore coke ring enforcer, okay? And, and you don't even know who you're, you know, you know, you know what I mean? You don't yeah. even know who you're with, right? And, and, you know, so, you know, and this guy served five years at Jessup for aggravated you know, whatever. And, and so it was like, all right. So Marshall told him, he said, look, here's the deal. If you don't squat 500 by 10 by whatever. And I think they gave him six weeks. You're out of here. And Kirk's like, what? And he said, you heard us. If you don't do 500 for 10 in this time, you're out of here. And he's like, oh, okay. And, that was the real deal. And, and he did it. And everybody said, all right. But it's not like he catapulted up to the periphery. All that meant is he was allowed to, like, change our weights. Yeah, we kind of earned his spot with you guys. Uh, no, he didn't get kicked out. Yeah, he didn't get kicked out. And he was allowed to lift. <laughs> and he and, and you know and but but he had to conform to what we were doing. It was like we were not interested in any of his theories or his ideas or any of his words, really. Well, did did <laughs> he, he come? Did he did he come there with theories and ideas and and stuff? You said he was kind of cocky, right? Well, not to me. <laughs> but others, did, did, uh, yeah, yeah, he was not uh, Kirk's. He was. He came ready yeah. to learn, or what? Later, later, he, he came to me. I mean, he came to me and said, "Hey, uh, you know, would you would you work with me?" And I said, "Okay, kind of. I mean, would you be willing to actually try some new things?" And I had been doing that chalet one one rep stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it was like. Enough of that, right? It was a good thing to experience. And basically what it was in a nutshell is that on um, Monday you would work up to a single rep in the squat and the bench, and on Thursday you'd work up to a single rep in the deadlift. Other than that, that was it. If you wanted to catch up on some arms or something or, you know, whatever. But that was the end of the official work for the week. And it worked quite well. And I don't want to dismiss that. That was the ultimate minimalism. But um, it's just another valid arrow in the quiver, right, Jim? Yep. So Kirk comes in, Kirk shows up and and seeks your help. What do you have him start doing? 
But didn't Marty? Five. So all, everything's five. So okay. I think this is the thing. And, and at this t- point in time, I've been talking to Ed a lot. And I'm asking Ed, well, where'd you get your stuff from? And he's going, well, like it's a combination of Ernie France and Doug Furness. Well, when you talk to Doug, Doug's big influence was Dennis Wright, another world champion. He was the Oklahoma world champion, kind of sort of in Doug's neighborhood. So everybody had this, and, and then Cassidy. So you had, you had Cassidy, you had Ernie France, you had Dennis Wright, and everybody was saying that five reps, that's the key to power. Yeah. Right. So to me, that's a key. And then you've got the students, Doug Furness, Ed Coombe, you know, any of Cassidy's guys, right? It's like, okay, well, that's empirical evidence that fives really work. So, and a lot of the the same strategies that that uh, Dennis Wright and Ernie had and that Doug and Ed had conformed with what Hugh had, except because Hugh was an older version. He was even older than Ernie. Um, we had to cleave Hugh's stuff in half, right? We had to, we had to cut Hugh's stuff down from, he was, he was cracking it hard twice a week right. where these guys were hitting it hard once a week. Now, when we made that compromise, that's when all of a sudden our East Coast product uh, progress took off. It was a big deal. Now, many, many, and many years later, when I talked to Dorian, guess what? He was doing the same stuff. Yeah. Yes, his his uh, default rep range was six. Yeah. With a couple of forced and. Right. You know, he, he talks about negative. I didn't see a lot of negatives with his stuff, but I'm just saying uh, that that being the if there's one rep range that you want to work, there's a combination between strength and hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. It's get really good at your fives. Yeah. And that, and that's usually... Whatever it is. Let me ask you this though. Didn't you tell me once that when you first started coaching Kirk, you had to get his depth better so you worked pause squats with him? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, he kind of denies that. I put that up to him the other day. He said, I don't remember any pause squats. And, but if you look at his technique, it's a pause squat without a pause. Yeah. He That's was, slow when, I first started, when he first came to us, to me, he was sloppy. He he he'd get all cranked up. He was very very good at getting psychologically crazy. Yeah, he liked that uh, theatric aspect to lifting, and I encourage that. Let me tell you, if you get another five percent out of acting crazy, okay, go That's ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Take- but you but you can't sacrifice your technique. Right. So that's a trade-off. So here he comes, and he was a big deal in whatever he was in, the ADFPA, and blah, 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 you know. And I was like, okay, but this this is different. And it took him, it took us a lot of years 
he did not do good in his initial national championships. Mm. When he came to the USPF national championships, that boy got a rude shock. He was a junior, wasn't he? Well, whatever. Yeah, who yeah. Cares, who cares what he was? No, I remember. No, remember when he got that last attempt on his squad? That was that. that was, it took. It took us. I think. I think that was. If that wasn't the second year, that might have been the third year. Oh wow! Oh yeah, it and, took us a while. Oh and, no, uh, no, no! By oh, the way. By the way, he's got a lot of his early footage on that cadet to captain that he sells. He's best, got a, the best BT ever, man. It's the best. I've watched that thing a zillion times. You know uh, what? It, it's good. Yeah, it goes all the way back. He's in high school and stuff. But uh, talking about the psych and everything, you know, I think he was he was kind of like the ultimate warrior of uh, powerlifting. I think he should have gone farther but, with but, it. But he was for real. He wasn't. He this, was. This, he this, was real. You know what I really yeah, liked? Was, you know what I really right. liked about him was when he would psych up to do the deadlift and he'd put his hands up in the air. He'd like gaze into the heavens and he was like ready to just kick ass. He'd come down and, you know, uh, just grab the bar. And that, that one video of him doing, uh, and he is just a monster on that uh, YouTube video that we put up. He's doing 810 for, for two. I mean, he is just crazy throwing and throwing the weight down at the end and just fired up beyond belief you think he's going to shoot through the roof or something but that was him that was him at his all-time peak that was, was yeah that, that was the thousand times two cycle he that was, was the monster. That, that was the 800 times five cycle i don't that think i've seen that, any that, that was the peak of his life I, I mean, have yeah. you guys seen any powerlifter more muscular than than him at that time? Uh, um, there's a couple guys you should have seen, maybe a little bit different. I would I would say Doug Young. Take a look at him. Uh, take a look at John Gamble when he was at his peak. Yeah, uh, and, you know, Kirk was pretty lean at that yeah. time too. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, you have to you have to exhibit that leanness. If you don't exhibit that leanness, you would you in terms of physique you're not going to be considered yeah and on that 810 i i don't even know how he got the bar over his quads his quads would you say marty they're like 35s or something yeah I, you know you'd have to ask him but they were just incredible marty uh, when, when he started going from your words doughy to the way he looked then wasn't a big part of that was when he hooked up with the guy up in uh anthony, anthony derizzo he helped him out with nutrition. Oh, right? Yeah, a yeah. lot, a lot. Kirk, Kirk was um, Kirk n- never had any problem slamming calories, right? And he'd do things like I don't metrics, know. metrics, and beer. Yeah, or um, five <laughs> seven. 7-Eleven burritos, big, big bite <laughs> with uh, chili cheese, and yeah. and then you know whatever, and. Uh, but he was doughy, so he he we we came into contact with some guys from uh, Rhode Island from up there in in, in that particular area, and they had a, a guy named Anthony DeRizzo, who was just a a bodybuilding monster, but he was he was really huge. good bench presser. His and arms he, were nuts, man. Oh, he was he was he was completely. Uh, Unapologetic, 
you know, steroid monster and um, 550 raw bench. But he was really, really good on, I don't know, I'd call it realistic dieting. He was right. like, hey, he was like, hey, Kirk, well, you know, you don't have to enter the Olympia. So, you know, we don't have to get you down to less than 5%. But if we can get you down to 9%, you'd be scary. Yeah. It's like, I don't think we got to do that much. And they worked together and he created Kirk. When Kirk is a surprising guy in a lot of ways. First thing I must say this, when Kirk got on this thing, I told him, I said, son, you've got to bring up. You, I mean, you, yeah. Okay. Everybody's going to expect you to be a big squatter, but I mean, you, you know, you look like a minotaur. You got to bring your upper body up. Hmm. Right. Yeah, right. That's I mean, right. seriously, and his his bench press was not not that good. You know, as a two twenty or he was barely doing four hundred and barely deadlifting six twenty, and just not that good in the other list. He's a good squatter, uh, but I said, can you address your weaknesses? I'm not interested in building an, a world record squatter. Right, I'm I'm interested in building a world champion. And he was like, I could do that. And he had the situation, and he didn't let anything stand in his way. For he, he set aside 10 years of his life, and he got into a pocket. We worked a union job, and he didn't let anything stand in the way of his goal. Mm-hmm. And other than working the job and lifting, everything else was superfluous. Women came and went. You know, you, you know what I mean? Everything else came and went, but what stayed was the training and the job. Mm-hmm. And one enabled the other, and he was a damn good employee because, you know, he was, you know, he appreciated the job. So it was a synergistic thing, and he stayed in that pocket for 10 years. Yeah, that's crazy. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, if you were given the opportunity right now, Jim, would you do it? I'm not talking about wife and kids, but I mean, if you were single. Yeah, but I'm saying that you you don't you don't see that or hear the hear of that much. You know what I'm saying? And he was on his he was on his feet all day long for that job too. Oh, it does. I mean, come on. I mean, skipping wreath in the Russian tundra. I mean, (laughs) come on. Yeah, but still. You know? he, he was young too. He was young too. Yeah, he's young, and he's like, "Thank God for this, <laughs> for this job." And because of it, I mean, he was able to persevere. Uh, so, all right, now look, we've, we've gone so far afield here. All right, and we're talking about Kirk. We got on to Kirk prematurely. In addition to all this coaching, I've, you know, my writing career gets traction at this point too right so i started off writing articles for powerlifting usa and eventually i think i penned like 50 plus articles for them but your but, mentor was cassidy for writing yeah, well, he, yeah, Hugh, Hugh got me you got me in mm-hmm. but once you got me in I had no problem on my own at that point because yeah. I'm a good writer. 
When did you discover, you know, as we all go through life, we kind of discover what we're good at. And then, you know, a lot of us take that path and we really excel at it. So when did you discover that you could really write under Hugh when you started working with him? No. Before that, you just had an actor. Oh, yeah. yeah, but I'm a reader. I mean, yeah, you're a big reader. I, yeah. I read, I read Gogol's Terrace and Bulba when I was 10. I read Jack London, you know, all the Yukon tales. I read Turgenev's Sportsman's Notebook when I was a kid. I read Hemingway, uh, Big Two Hearted River Part Two. I mean, we didn't have all these distractions like these kids have now. Yeah, right. I was a deep reader, but my father was an intellectual, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're uh, a very conscientious reader, you kind of become a good writer if you can find your voice. Right, Jim? Yeah. But when you did write, you... You got to write like you speak. But That's when right. did you understand that you were oh, actually I was, a good I was, I, was, I was a talent in high school. I just didn't choose to pursue it. <laughs> I had a lot of distractions. Yeah. So, so my writing career takes off. I'm a regular guy with uh, Powerlifting USA. Uh, in, in addition to that, I'm also intimately involved with Robert Smith, who is a very big writer in the martial arts field. Uh, he wrote like 20 books. Wow. So he acted as a writing mentor toward me. And so then Muscle and Fitness called me up, Dr. Jim Wright. And he said, uh, you know, we've been reading your stuff and we'd love to have you come on board. End up writing 84 feature articles for muscle, for the Weeder Empire, you know, Muscle Fitness, yeah. Black, uh, what year Prime, was that? All the, I started with them in 89. Okay. And, uh, you know, they, I mean, I had one one issue of Muscle and Fitness where I had five articles. Now, so not, you, all, you, not all under my name. You did this while you were still living in Maryland? Yeah. And you would just take trips out there, and they would pay. The, the oh, they, oh no! And... Once I got once I got with Weeder, um, well, the first um, my the big boss is Tom Dieters, right. and uh, uh, Tom ran all uh, all the Weeder magazines. Bob Wolf was the boss at uh, Muscle and Fitness. Bob loved me, so they would fly me to the Night of Champions. In yeah. the, theater in new york they fly me to the arnold and they fly me to the olympia mm-hmm. and i would sit in the front row in the press box for muscle and fitness and i would write up a report on the show but, but Marty, when this I, is this oh, is when, such... I, me, when i took the job i told first i told jim wright then i told tom Dieters, then i told bob wolf i said i hate bodybuilding yeah that's what yeah. i was gonna say and they said, we understand, but if you can turn in really good copy, we really don't care. And I'm like, okay, all right, let's try it out. So again, uh, I lasted for, I don't know, I don't know how many years, 84 feature articles. <laughs> and yeah. I became the guy, the go-to guy for 
profiles, contest coverage, and especially training articles. And that coincided with when Doreen was coming up. Yeah, my tenure with Muscle and Fitness pretty much actually totally coincided with Dorian's reign. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we we uh, uh, was it, it was interesting because when I would go to these bodybuilding shows, I wouldn't go to the night show. I couldn't stand it. They, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I was just like. So if you know anything about bodybuilding, the whole show is decided at the prejudging. So if yeah. you get a copy of the prejudging results, you know what's going on. So I would get a copy of the prejudging results and I always had as the lead guy for muscle and fitness, who would be with me? Uh, of course, uh, Julian Schmidt was with Flex. He was the top guy. I love Julian. Uh, Jimmy Wright with Flex. Uh, muscle fitness, we had a bunch of guys that were like, you know, guys that finished at the top of their class at journalism school, but they didn't know anything about bodybuilding or fitness or strength. And to them, this was just another gig until, you know, they got a job with Wall Street Journal. Right. Right. And they were really good, but they, they were just professional writers. You know, so I knew my stuff. So I got all the training articles. And, and so because of that, I got to interview all the, the best bodybuilders in the world and how they trained and mm -hmm. most particularly what the nutrition was that they used to get that lean. Right. The training didn't interest me that much. I didn't really care about that. But their nutrition, these bodybuilders consistently – their strategies to get lean are the best in the world. Right. Period. Right. As you can attest, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, yeah. And it's just, you know, you just got to be disciplined enough to, to endure it. Yeah, that's right. You got to be able to suffer. <laughs> and yeah. it's all for the consistency in the off season. It's just, Oh, the same thing. Oh, you know, these guys are, are eating the same thing all the time. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, is there not a slightly diluted way for regular people to, you know, maybe hit that, but not quite with the degree of. Oh yeah. Just like what Kirk did. He, he did a form of a, a physique diet, but with, without the, suffering really just to get it he got his body fat to a percentage where he didn't have to suffer to get any lower it's really that that last two or three percent that you want to take off that you have to suffer for you know but if, but if you don't have to do that yeah you eat like we always espouse man get yeah. that protein in you know um it's just vegetable you still have carbs you just don't have to go crazy you can't go crazy with it so marty marty here comes uh Dorian and you being a power lifter and that's your true passion you see this guy he's got crazy mass and he's kind of lifting like you guys lift and dude yeah. he loved you he so loved you. so so you this must have been a, a great thing for you this was like fresh content and you know something in your wheel totally in your wheelhouse and something you can well, really get I on board with he, he told me personally that the best article ever written on him 
and I love Peter McGuff. Peter is a great, great guy. And Peter is Dorian's main writer. But I did an article in Flex on, on Dorian, and he's like, that's the best article anyone's ever written on me, man. <laughs> I was like, thank you. And, and uh, I had been hopeful. We, we had a meeting in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey. I was hoping that we were, we were going to get a book done. He, he was going through a transitional period in his life at that point, so it didn't come together. Uh, I, he, when he won the Olympia, I can't pinpoint the year, but they, uh, I wrote the main contest coverage on the Olympia for muscle and fitness. And I was also assigned to do the Dorian photo shoot the next morning. And I was allowed to pick the body part for the article. So naturally I picked back. Uh-huh. Right. So now imagine you've you've just i mean how much deprivation do you have to go through to win the olympia and then stay in shape for the next day too uh, and then you win yeah and you, you can't even have a beer you can't have Dude, any tell me how he looked though tell me how he looked oh oh it, the, the, here's the thing about dorian now I'm going to say this, and he would agree with me. He was not as good after that bicep tear. Period. There was one year when his legs were, in my opinion, second only to Tom Platt's. That's probably 93 you're talking about. I think he yeah, did. I can't pick the exact year, but there, yeah. that, there was one year when his legs were just, it was like, God damn. And, and I mean, everything, front, back, his calves are incredible. Um, and upper body, back, I mean, no one can match it. Best back ever, I think. Only Franco, but even then, not really. Um, symmetrical issues, yeah, a little, some, right? But the thing that Dorian had is he was the biggest guy that was ever able to get that lean, that striated, that, yeah. that dry. Grainy. Grainy. That's who, that's where Grainy came from, Dorian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he was huge. Yeah. Right. Now, was he a little bit disproportional? He he wasn't Flex Wheeler, but Flex wasn't two sixty. Yeah, Dorian just overwhelmed him with size, right? Ah, uh, I would have. I tell you the truth, I would have loved it if they would have given him the Flex the Flex the Olympia one year. What? I do. I, I if you'd seen this guy in person, this no. guy. I mean, he was. He was not, his back was incredible. Yeah. He was just a smaller, lighter guy. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was like a rocked out Frank Zane. Yeah, I liked Flex. He was just so symmetrical and just had such a beautiful uh, physique, you know. You know who but, else really liked him? Was... He was strong looking. He was strong looking. When you saw him relaxed, it was like, damn, look at that. I rem- I mean, hey, I remember when I was working for Lou Zwick, um, there was a, uh, I forget what bodybuilding show it was, but we were all there filming it, and I was helping with the steady cam and all that, and I remember Flex came on, and he was posing to, uh, I think it was Mariah Carey, and Jim, what is it, a 30-second or, or one-minute posing routine? 
Yeah, they have a little. I think they have ninety or a little more. They have yeah. A little so water. so flex is almost done. And Lou, I remember Lou in the back going because everybody was just such in such awe of flex. I hear Lou going, "Let him go, let him go." They let him go over his time. Right. And he just kept. I I don't remember how long he kept posing for, but uh, it was just uh, that. W- that hurt. must have been around nineteen ninety one or two. And um, I wasn't there. Huh? I wasn't there. Well, and we did some other stuff with him, and uh, he was, um, you know, we we had to hang out at Powerhouse Gym in Fullerton. We did a shoot there with him one time. I always thought he was a real cool guy. He sat there and talked with us. You know, I was 18 or 19. I had some other guys. I think uh, Marty Ron was there. Oh, I know. So, so you know, you know, Ron. Um, and uh, but no, anyway, that was uh, but he had a great physique, yeah. All right, now look, I think we got to got to the end of this phase. Can, can I you? ask you one more thing though about Dorian? Sure, you as many things as you want, yeah. Well, we can still cover Dorian what, next time, what, and yeah. we could do that. One thing that I always found that when I was backstage or at the gym next to these guys, I always thought to myself, my God, how can anybody physically get this big? I mean, you must have had that feeling with Dorian and a lot of these other guys that you covered for Muscle and Fitness. But, um, I mean, even though you're not a bodybuilder type guy, you must have been, like, in awe of this guy's, you know, size and and everything, right? I mean, he was a monster. Not really. <laughs> JP, you set yourself up for that. One. I set so myself up. up for defeat. All right. Yeah. Okay, not really. All right. No, not when you've been around Gamble and Kaz and and no, no, not really. It's just he's he's, he's uh, leaner. He's um, yeah, it's a different look. I've seen guys bigger than him. Well, yeah, but I mean, with with the the symmetry and the leanness and all that, it's pretty incredible. It, it's one thing to see him in a magazine. I, I, I'm not arguing with you. Let's go. Uh, Come on, man. Look, I got a book. <laughs> I do too. All right, who's going first? What book? You. It's Anybody? called Deer Camp. Oh, what's it about? I like you. I like that. Yeah, I know because you wrote me a story about that. I still have. Anyway, uh, it's about this guy who was actually a writer. He grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yep. With his family. Hemingway and uh, the writer. Who's the writer we like, Jimmy? Jim Harrison. Yep, Harrison. Yep. (coughs) So all his brothers, his father was a, never was home, and all this, all they had in common were the outdoors and hunting. And they all went their separate ways. They all, all the brothers have different problems, and they're all gathering at this deer camp that his father has set up. And uh, man, it's just a I'd love to read that book. What's that? I'd love to read that. that yeah, sounds- you know that Gray Sporting Journal. You know that really fancy yeah, outdoor yeah, journal. Yeah. That, uh, like- that had a great review of it, and so I bought it off of that. And man, I'm enthralled, and I'm about three quarters of the way through. Oh man, that's good. Well, I got one for you. What's that? Bust tail wide open. Nathan, oh, with uh, Frederick uh, Forrest. Nathan, Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest, yes. This, I read uh, that. This, no, you didn't read this because this just came yes. out. No, I did. It's no, you didn't. It just, came, it just came out. It just. I had to wait for this. It just came out. Okay. 
I bet. This is uh, incredible. Um, American Samurai had 30 horses shot at from underneath him, killed 31 men in one-on-one combat. Yeah. As a general. But, and uh, there was some story where he rescued some girl when he was young. and Oh, all kind of, I mean. Was, that, chival- chivalry was his deal, man. He was just uh, like. Uh, a, a physical giant, yeah. uh, six foot two, two hundred and twenty pounds, uh, would uh, killed half his uh, enemies in sword fights. Really? Yeah. Uh, as a general, his tactics—they called him the Wizard of the South. They still study his, his stuff. His tactics were studied by Rommel, yeah, and who uh, von Clausewitz said that his victory at Bryce Station was the most perfect victory in the history of warfare. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, he would do things like he would use his, it, he was a cavalry guy, but he would like rush uh, a thousand cavalry guys to a particular point and dismount them and then have them act as infantry. Yeah. No one had done that, and the his cavalry were trained to act as infantry, so they had two separate, and they could do that at a moment's notice. And his his tactics, he was never defeated in the entire Civil War until the very last battle, and that was only because he was overwhelmed. Right. Uh, and, you know, he was killing guys before he got into the war. Uh, we won't get into what happened after the war. This book is a great read. I mean, I just devoured this thing. So yeah. Who wrote this? Samuel Mit- Mitchum Jr. But uh, this is the this is the best single volume on the Civil War I've read since uh, oh, probably twenty years. Mm. So hey, you need uh, to get hey, Cisco uh, and no, Ebert. Let me let me ah. ask you how, how many hours? This is a serious question. How many hours a day do you guys dedicate to reading? Uh, I would on, say on average, what do you try for? What do you shoot? Minutes, for? I would say around 90 minutes. Yeah. Okay. I read before I go to bed. Yeah, me too. Okay. And I read like I'll be waiting to pick up my son. I'll take my Kindle with me or a book. Yeah, with yeah. me. Catch yeah. 10 I minutes. Know, that. Yeah. Cause you guys I are reading a- like a book a week. And with my schedule, it'll take me five months to read a book. JP. Yeah. I have to, I have to jump off real quick here. Something's going on in my backyard. So oh. can you finish that for us? Yeah, All sign right. off. Let's see you Thank next you, week. Thank you. Thank you. All right. In the meantime, check out Marty's weekly po- uh, column at uh, ironcompany.com. Also pick up Marty's book, Purposeful Primitive and Strong Medicine at Iron Company. Uh, for all your strength equipment needs, benches, squat racks, power racks, just uh, selectorized equipment, rubber gym flooring, anything you need, go to ironcompany.com. We'll take care of you. And then finally, we've got uh, new Jim Steele articles at our site. Just go to articles and uh, search out Jim Steele. He's got a bunch of good stuff there. And yeah, next week, his... find out what happened in Marty's backyard. <laughs> yeah, it's always something. See, that's that's the thing that happened this time, right? It's it's usually always. I like to call it uh, "Where's Waldo?" You know, when we yeah. used to do uh, when we used to do the video version. Right. Uh, oh, we used to do it live. He left it on, so I see Marty in the camera. He goes, "Okay, we're done." He gets up and leaves, 
And the thing yeah. is still on live. And I called him <laughs> and I said, hey, Marty, you didn't switch the camera off. He goes, what? So I see him bear crawling over to the... I lost it, man. I just died. And I said, you got to turn that damn computer off, dude. Oh, man, that's hilarious. So it's, 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 it's the Where's Waldo moment of uh, Raw with Marty Gallagher. Anyway, all right, Jim, good one. All right, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, see you. All right, bye.